The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to episode 49 of The Things We All Carry. Mike is a firefighter paramedic from Rhode Island with a bit over 20 years of experience in the fire service. He's been a career firefighter for 18 years and has spent the last 11 in Rhode Island. He has also worked in Albany and Schenectady, New York, as well as Fall River, Massachusetts. He first reached out to me on Facebook and the My Story at the Things We All Carry email address. One of his opening lines was that he's a freshly minted lieutenant who should never have been promoted because of my mental health issues. With an opening line like that, I had to find out the rest of the story. Mike has taken the struggles he's faced and decided he wants to make sure that no one needs to follow the path he took. He wants to help ensure that those brothers and sisters in his own department, as well as those surrounding him, never feel alone. He ended his email with this statement, Ultimately, the only thing that is important is to share our stories, and I hope to share mine with you. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Joining us today is Mike. He's from Rhode Island. He reached out to me. And he just said he, he had something he wanted to talk about. And so we talked for a while the other day, and now he's here to record a show. Where are we finding you today, Mike? I am currently on the waterfront in the town I live in. It's very famous for uh, movie scenes. And actually, I can just about throw a rock at Jay Let- one of Jay Leno's homes. It's also one of the most beautiful spots, I think, in the country. But it's a spot that has had tragedy for me as well. So before we get into that tragedy, because I know we talked about that the other day and it definitely was a tragedy, but before we get into that, did you grow up in that area or where are you from originally? Yeah. So I was born in the town I worked for and currently live back in 1984. Lived there, lived here until I was 10. Uh, moved up to upstate New York with my mom around that time, back in when I was, like I said, when I was 10 years old. And then I bounced between upstate New York and here in Rhode Island from there on until I turned 18 and then moved back to Rhode Island permanently. So what was family life like for you then growing up? I mean, it took me a long time to get through past all of it, but, and I don't want to come off as a victim, but I come from a broken home. My parents met uh, basically as almost a one night stand from what I can gather from my mom and my dad. My mom got pregnant with me. She didn't know for a couple months. He found out, um, then found my dad and my dad disappeared until about a month before I was born, I guess, from the stories my mom says. Parents got married when I was four, divorced when I was like six or seven. My father was an abusive alcoholic to my mom. That very stereotypical broken home story. I always hate sharing it that way because there's always someone that had it worse. And for the struggles that my parents gave me, they also provided me a lot more than a lot of other people. So like I said, my dad was an alcoholic. We don't talk anymore, even to this day now, but he 
had his struggles with substances throughout my life. My mom has always been a uh, hotel manager my entire life. And she is a basically, I hate to say this, but a functional alcoholic. You want to know that she drinks a lot, but to this day, she can drink basically anyone I know under the table. But she, at this point in her life, is keeping herself together and has always kept it together for the most part. So it was an interesting way of growing up, to say the least. In your upbringing, you mentioned it is better than others, but not as good as others as well. And I think that's... Uh, that parallels what we talk about in the show, really, if you think about it. Uh, it's not, a, I don't think it's a matter of whether it's worse than someone else or better than somebody else. It's how it affects you that matters. To an extent, yeah. And the, I think it's not the way it affects me. It's the way I perceived it. And that's why up, in, up until just a couple of years ago, I really thought I was a victim of all my circumstances. I thought the world was out to get me. Nobody loved me. Nobody liked me. And it, that's the kind of dynamic that, that, my upbringing gave me. I was always, I always felt like I was an afterthought to my parents and the inconvenience. But again, my mom was a hotel manager. I when we moved up to New York. Her hotel was tied to a ski, a little ski resort that's now shut down. So I learned how to ski. And then my dad paid for sailing lessons down here during the summer where I lived. And those things that, you know, my parents weren't necessarily the best parents at times. They provided me a lot of opportunity that showed me that there's more to life than what I had seen. I, in my therapy sessions, I talked to my therapist about some of this stuff. And she said, people in my position, the, the upbringing that I had, they go one of three ways. They either become complete losers, end up in jail, drug addicts, so on and so forth. They flounder, the, the middle third kind of flounders and doesn't necessarily go the jail route, but never really succeeds their life. And then the other third kind of pull themselves out of it. And that's what I did. And I think a lot of that is because in the failings of my parents, they also raised me to be somewhat self-sufficient and provided me opportunities that I think others didn't have, which showed me a side of the world that I don't think some people can appreciate or understand that we're in my position. Are you your only child? I do have a younger brother. Okay. Uh, he's 11 years younger than me. He's a half brother. And again, it, it, perception is sometimes hard because from my perception, he, one of the men that abused my mom was his father. He never knew that until he was maybe a teenager. My mom, that was just something my mom and I carried. He, my mom met my stepdad who passed away a few years back now when he was five or six. So he only grew up knowing my stepdad and but he grew up with my mom and my stepdad in the house that he owned and had a school. And my mom gave my brother a lot more stability, even to her own admission. And in my opinion, and he gets, he got mad at me for saying this, but I feel like he got coddled a little bit more than me. She went out of her way to make sure that he was taken care of. And he made some bad choices in life. He's cleaned up now, but he's had a couple cents in rehab. And now he doesn't talk to me because I'm not exactly sure why. I've tried to talk to him, but it's, un it's unfortunate. I see it from my perspective that he was raised better than me, had more stability than me. He didn't grow up. My mom got beat by multiple men in my life, And I grew up witnessing all that. My mom would smoke pot when I was six or seven years old, actually at the rocks that I'm looking at right now with her friends in front of me, like letting me just run around and play. The dynamic was so much different. And yet I've been able to forge a, a life and create a family 
And he's had much harder struggles when it comes to his own personal growth. So perception is important, but it's also important to be as objective about yourself too. I can't explain the difference between him and I. I can only say that there are differences. For me, it's about how you pick yourself up when you're in your lowest points. I just can't articulate it well enough, I think. No, I think it was articulated well. I, it is. It's how you play those cards that are dealt at times. Yeah, exactly. So what was... Yeah, I didn't figure that out until just a couple of years ago. I'm 38 now, and up until my mid-30s, I still played that victim. I was a victim of circumstance. Nothing ever went my way. And that was such a misguided view and perspective of what. All right, so what was school like growing up? Again, I was the, I got bullied a lot. I'm not trying to make excuses. I have ADHD, so I'm pretty spastic. Not, I don't focus well. Um, and I have something that my dad diagnosed as diarrhea of the mouth, which I keep in the back of my mind all the time. And basically whatever comes into my brain comes out of my mouth instantaneously. There's no thought behind it. It's something I work on to this day, but it got me in trouble a lot at school with the other kids. But I think the best blessing that ever happened to me was moving up to New York because when I moved up there, my graduating class in high school was 28 kids, 29. If you include the foreign chiefs, we were kindergarten through 12th grade, all in one building school with roughly 350 kids. So there was the social struggles there. And then my mom being a single mom and going through her woes again, being an afterthought, my grades were never great. And even there were times like when I would hit on a roll and my mom would be like, oh, okay, great. And then leave it alone. And I was never encouraged to pursue my grades. With that lack of encouragement from my parents, I was never driven to do better in school. So being through high school, I went through middle school and high school in upstate New York, wanted to become an architect, geared my actual high school curriculum towards that. I took a lot of classes like that were offered at my school for like drawing, technical drawing and things of that nature. And I really enjoyed all that. But again, without the encouragement of my parents, I didn't know how to go and visit schools. I didn't really understand how to apply to schools and all that paperwork. And the chaos of my life, I just never could gather my thoughts enough to actually understand, hey, you got to actually go visit these schools and you have to fill out these applications and write essay. I just didn't understand it. Like I knew it, but I didn't comprehend it all. But I'm very blessed to have gone to a school like that. Between my junior and senior year of high school, I was down here with my dad and my mom calls me up one day and says, hey, I've got some news. I'm like, oh, what's up? She's I moved. And I'm like, what do you mean you moved? She's like, I moved in with my stepfather at the time. And I just moved up here and we're going to sell, I'm going to sell the house. Like, what do you mean? What about me? It's my senior year of high school. Are you going to make me restart, start school, like at a new school? And she said she had arranged a place for me to live. Long story short, like a week before I am supposed to come home to finish out my senior year with living with them and going to my original school, they had no idea what I was talking about. So I ended up actually finding a living arrangement for myself. I lived with a friend and her mom who they had their own struggles. I was actually sleeping in their dining room for probably about four or five months. And then 
that situation got untenable for multiple reasons. And it takes a village to raise a child. And that's what my village did. Some people, some friends of mine had talked to their parents and their parents had heard about my situation about basically just about to become homeless. And at the time, Pastor Ron Lacazzi, I'll just say his name out because he's an amazing human being, reached out to me. He had a Christian community and in, in the town and said, I have a room, come move in. And he took me in. So I was able to finish out my senior year of high school at school that I had been at for six, seven. And I count my blessings for that every day. And that's why I'll proudly say Pastor Lacazzi, because he, he's a beautiful human being. So during your junior, junior high school, I know that was a pivotal moment because you were in New York when 9-11 struck, correct? Yeah. I think it's good to go through the whole story. I had a good friend, Natasha, first period announcement said, call him. She got called down to the office. She came back up and we were just getting ready to go to our, her and I had two classes together in the morning and she comes upstairs and she's like, Hey, I was down in the office and they, they had the news up. They said a plane hit the world trade center. And I'm like, and I actually, you can see one of your podcasts, you know, I'm laughing because the guy said the same thing that I said to myself. I'm like, oh, it's gotta be like a small sense. No, somebody just be involved, no big deal. And our next class was history class. And it was with Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Sandra Gancy. And it's important to say her name because one, she's just one of the best teachers I think anybody could have ever had. But we walked into her office or her room she had it up on the TV and you could see the first hour, just smoke filling and out, filling out of it. And we're like, all, all struck. And so we're watching the news and we're listening and we watched the second plane hit. <laughs> I always choke up talking about it. I just remember there was four of us in that classroom with the teacher because it was a very small class for whatever reason. And I was dumbfounded. And right away, Mrs. Gansey was, this is a terrorist. I'm like, nah, no, nah, there's gotta be something wrong. Like I was just so dismissive of it because it was just so surreal. Come to find out Mrs. Gansey's brother-in-law was Chief Peter Gansey, who was the chief of FDNY that day. I highly recommend anybody that gets the opportunity, listen to the stories about Peter Gansey. I haven't heard or read about anybody else that could meet the leadership qualities that he had. Being one of the 343 firefighters that died that day, he had the opportunity to leave. He was in a command set post with Mayor Giuliani and the fire commissioner, all these other guys, and they took off. They said, hey, this building's coming down. And that he, let me reset this a little bit. He was part of the collapse in the first town when the first tower went down, dragged himself out, went to another command post, and as they realized that the second tower was coming down, he told everybody to leave. And when they said, hey, you need to come with us, he said, no, I need to stay with my men. I don't know what kind of leadership somebody would want from somebody that could beat that. That, that is a man that I admire now and I will continue to pursue to learn more about. So I strongly recommend anybody look at that. But like I said, I was a junior in high school. I didn't even take all of that in at the time, this whole tie to the FCNY and Mrs. Gancy. I understood it, but I didn't tie it all in until well into my adult age, but I was lost. I, my grades weren't the best at that point. My parents weren't really encouraging me to go to college. And 
Soon after that, my local volunteer department started an explore program. My godfather was a firefighter for a town next to the one I serve now. So I understood. I had seen the fire service a little bit. And once I became a volunteer, I fell in love with it. There was no college education needed, the schedule, the whole thing. I just, it, it seemed like a blast. And that's where life took me at that point. And I'm so happy it did. The beauty and the tragedy, like I'll talk about later. Um, 9-11 will always affect me. I'll always tear up. I don't know if you've made it to the memorial yourself. I've been there twice now. I can't make it without crying, but it's a beautiful sight. And for me, it's probably one of the most pivotal days in my life because it put me to where I am today. So that was what, roughly 18 years ago that you, you joined the fire service or a career uh, fire service? Was that 19 now? Uh, it's 2023. So it'll be, no, it'd be, it was right. It was still 2001. So 21 years ago. So the fire service in general was 21 years ago, but as a, 21, 22, yeah. as a career medic and firefighter, it's been 18. Is that what you said? 18 now. Okay. Yep. 18 as not, a career medic. Yeah, not to discount your volunteer service, and I apologize for that. I, I just remember no, us talking no, about no, no, 18. No. It, it, no, and again, my volunteer department did 450 calls a year. It, it, there are some awesome volunteer firefighters, and there are guys that are so motivated in the volunteer side of things that I admire. It's the same job, just most of the time it's lower call volume, less demand, and they can fill it with volunteers, which is beautiful. Which, the world could be like that, but thankfully we need to have career firefighters in this field. And I've had that opportunity to take that on. So where do you start that process? I know you start with the volunteers. They have an, an explorer program, but yep. where does it go from there? Again, after that, I fell in love with it. I started doing a little bit of research and I actually got my emergency medical response, first responder, our emergency medical responder in New York at 17. Liked that. So I go through high school, just dabbling, basically I'll say in the fire service and get out realizing that I'm going to go to a community college, work on a fire science degree and start taking the tests to become a firefighter. My first semester, I took an EMT basic class and really enjoyed the following year that summer. It was summer of 20, of 2004. I had an apartment. I was 19. I had an apartment. I was teaching sailing. On a lot of levels, life was pretty awesome. Being 19, having your own apartment and having roommates that are over 21 doesn't always end in, end in the best scenarios either. Uh, I started drinking a lot, living a lifestyle that I just wasn't maturing off for. And at the end of that summer, I got kicked out of my apartment. And once again, I got a little lost. I didn't go back to my community college because again, I just, I didn't comprehend things at the time and didn't know how to sign back up basically to make an excuse for it. And I moved back up to upstate New York with my mom to dry out, basically. Just saying, get away from this chaos of drinking and sailing. And it was fun, but it, it's, I needed more structure in my life. Move up there. I was going to be a ski instructor at this little, local mountain near my mom's house. In between, or for the fall, I decided to take a job at Walmart. That's where I met my now wife. And we started dating. And as the ski season came to an end, my wife pointed out this article or this ad in a newspaper for a little ambulance in the capital region of New York, which is where we live here. And I applied and they gave me a job. And I started March, actually March 18th, 2005. And they had the 911 contracts for Schenectady and Albany, New York. So they responded, they respond with the fire department. Fire departments provide the paramedic, they provide the transport. Uh, those are really crazy cities. A lot of shootings, a lot of stabbings. It's a constant just barrage of 
just really crazy calls. After a few months of working there, I realized that being a paramedic was probably the best course of action for me in life. And I ended up starting in the fall of 2005 at my paramedic program. Got my New York State paramedic in January of 2007. And after that, I started, I wanted to always, my plan was to always come back to Rhode Island. I kept my license in Rhode Island. I kept my residency in Rhode Island because I just, I love it here. This is my, so I think actually an important part to add to all this in this portion of the story is that my wife and I were engaged at the time. I did everything very young. I pushed hard early in life. And I was 21 or 22 and I had a job opportunity actually at the fire department that my godfather had just retired from. And I ended up failing the psych evaluation. So I had already moved back down to Rhode Island. We had an apartment. My wife was getting ready to move down like a month after I had moved, it, moved in. And I failed the psyche valve for the fire department and I didn't get the job. And I was devastating. I remember breaking down to her and saying, I get it if you don't want to move down here. I get it if you don't want to be with me anymore. And she stuck by my side. Now, I think a lot of people would take that as something like, you're shit out of luck. You're never going to get on a fire department again. And I had those thoughts. But I was too stubborn, I guess. I don't know what it was. I talked to you earlier about, I'm good at tripping myself up. I have a lot of stories like that. Failing a psyche eval, bad interviews that I was guaranteed the job. I failed a police investigation in essence because I had an argument with a, a supervisor one time and I was honest about it. And they failed me on the keys background investigation. These are all things that you would think would stop a person after the first one. And I just kept going. I didn't know what else to do, but I had my paramedic and I was working private ambulance companies. And then I took a job at a third service, a third service EMS service up in Massachusetts, about 30 minutes from where I live. They had four rescues, ambulances doing about 15,000, 16,000 calls a year. If I remember correctly, somewhere in that range, two of their trucks at the time, basically were always in the top 50 busiest apparatus in the country doing 4,500 calls a year each. And that's really where as a paramedic, I matured, there was one of my, like in the last year that I worked there, I remember one night we had four heroin overdoses within two hours. You literally are finishing up your paperwork and another one came in. It was a great place to cut my teeth. One of the calls that I had there that has always haunted me, and I think it's important to share at this point is there's this, we had a motorcycle accident and I, I kind of giggle because I think the guy was trying to miss a dead squirrel on the road. It was late at night. He was going down this road and all of a sudden he just hit his brakes and you could see the street going past squirrel that was run over by a car previously. And then he must've hit the curb or something and his body flew probably about 150 feet and hit the side of an, like a uh, mid nineties Impala. I don't know if you remember how those things were built, but yeah, I, re I remember. Oh yeah. The, the, those things are basically tanks. And his body indented a good six, eight inches onto the quarter, rear quarter panel. And we walk up and his face is just gone. His hairline's there, his neck is there, maybe a little piece of his chin, but everything else is just gone. And I remember like I, I 
right away, I walked up, I looked down, bent over, hands on my hips and looked up at my partner. I said, we're not doing anything. I said, let's get out of here. And I think I still hold some bitterness to my partner because he's like, oh, we need his information. He starts digging through the guy's pockets. And I was ready to write it up as a John Doe. And I just wanted to get out of there. I just remember being so uncomfortable being like, I don't, this is not a, this is not a, a it, it wasn't okay. His motorcycle went another like almost 300 or probably went about 300 feet from the corner of the street where the impact happened to where it landed. And I'll always remember this. There was a side road that went off the road that he was traveling on that was perpendicular to it. And his helmet was 30 feet up that side road. So his, what ended up happening, you can see the blood on the pole. His face smacked off the telephone pole, which ripped his helmet off his head, sent it up the street. And his body and the bike flew the other direction. So the whole thing is just crazy to me. And again, that call just sticks with me. It doesn't, I, I don't know, it doesn't bother me so much. It's just such a crazy dynamic. And it ended up when my stepfather passed away, I got his motorcycle and I drive that thing as often as I can. And I love the liberation of it, but it's dangerous. And that call reminds me of that. So do you deal so, with that? Do you deal with that call at the time or how's that handled? No, again, and this is why I reached out to you. It's business as usual after that. I think that's basically with every service. There's no opportunity to catch a breath. Prior to that, I worked for another service a couple of years actually before that happened. And I had a, I think he was four years old and I still remember his name. Dad had bought him one of those little pocket rockets from Walmart. And he had been riding it around in this like football field with his dad watching him. And after like he had been riding it for a while, but after a while, he uh, lost control, hit a bump, lost control, and basically whiskey throttled it and hit the side of a school building head on. And when he did, the handlebars turned and he impaled himself just below the sternum on the handlebar. And that call was just, that call I broke down after. Like my partner was writing the report, I'm cleaning up, and I just remember sitting there in the airway seat just hold my head, trying not to cry. He ended up pulling through. He had a laceration of the liver, had a little head injury, but he was fine. Thank God. Right after that call, we finished cleaning up. We got a call for a woman who at a beach who had slipped on a boogie board and her knee hurt. And both my partner and I were just so pissed off because this woman had such a ridiculous complaint in our eyes. Again, perception being what it is. And we still hadn't even decompressed from watching this four-year-old basically almost die. And it's the same thing after that motorcycle call. That was probably 1130, 11 midnight, something like that. And it was just next call, well, was, was the next call that we had to go to. At the time, I wasn't in therapy. I really wasn't, I wasn't on any medications at the time. And I just handled it. You just, again, it's that old story that I think a lot of guys and have come up from my time, we're told of, it's just stones in the backpack. That was just one more stone. You put it in that invisible backpack on your back and you carried it with you. And it forged through. So let's, let's jump forward for a minute when you get to where you're working now and that you get that job in 2011, yep. correct? Yep. And in between that time. That at that time you had actually started seeing a therapist to work on childhood traumas, if I'm not mistaken. Basically the childhood traumas I had my, my whole life is 
Got married at 22, bought a house at 23, my first son at 24, my second son at 26. I had an agenda and I hit all those check marks. Um, never taking care of my own mental health or trying to actually emotionally better myself for my children before I had them. And after a couple of years, after my boys were like two or three years old, I realized I started having a lot of anger. I was working 80 hours a week. I was working two, two, two EMS jobs, including at the fire department. And now I always worked 80 hours a week. So I realized I needed to start seeing someone to start trying to be better for my kids and my wife, of course, too. So basically I recognized that there, I didn't think it was necessarily fully job. I didn't think it was genuine. I'm thinking to myself, like, honestly, none of that's all these stories that I share with you, like, even now, I don't feel like they bother me. They're just, they're memories that I know have not taken a toll, but are things that are important for you to have witnessed. So I had never, basically the way I handled things at that time was I had a bad call. I'd tell my wife and when I was home, I would drink for two or three days after. A lot of people, one thing that I can attest to is, I'm gonna butcher the name of it. A lot of people talking about PTSD. I think something that we do need to really start focusing more on for first responders is acute stress disorder. The first 48 to 72 hours after your call, you can actually have the same symptoms of PTSD. Yeah, you know, that's you're still that's in these calls. That's important to point out, and, and I think Dr. Gregory pointed out on the show I did with her when she talked about that. Or, and I don't, maybe I'm mistaken about being Dr. Gregory. But most of the people don't have PTSD; they have acute syndrome, and it's because of that first 24, 48 hours. You're feeling like you have those PTSD type symptoms, but it's not PTSD because actually PTSD doesn't come can't be diagnosed until 30 days out. Exactly. And even, even after that, like it's all about how you process all this stuff. And I'm not, a, I'm not a mental health professional, but I don't like labels either. And PTSD to me always carries me because once you have a label, it's hard to shake you sometimes. And a disorder is something that I feel like is a long-term lifelong problem or typically is where if you put in the work and you really want to get better. I feel like there's a lot of opportunity for you too. You know what I mean? Um, so again, I'm not a mental health professional. This is just perspectives from, this is my perspective, the path that I've taken. But at the end of the day, like I want to be better and I want to stay in my career. If it really comes down to it, like I made sure that I have an out. I've made sure to, if this job becomes too much, it's okay to tap out. I haven't hit that point yet. I don't think I've come too close, but at the end of the day, that's, those are the things that we need to appreciate. So back to the acute stress disorder thing, my answer to it was I'll drink for a few days, just numb the feelings, push them to the side and we'll want. So again, it just another stone to put in the backpack and it got easy to put in with a little bit of alcohol. Not saying it's right, but even now I still, I'll still occasionally do that. If I've had a bad couple of days at work, I tell my wife like, Hey, I'm just, I need to veg out for a day or two. I do it more purposely and consciously now, but, and I always have the intention of making sure that I deal with the draw with the trauma that I have and my reason for it. But I want to come out of that, making sure that I've dealt with it. 
So let's jump forward to summer of 2018, because this is something you, you brought up to me immediately when you first reached out to me. What happened in that call? What happened during that summer? Again, I was in therapy. We had just had a couple of guys get promoted to my station and my shift. And again, this, I was still in this victim mentality. And this is why I talk about it a little bit. I didn't think any of the guys liked me and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know what I mean? Guys don't like me. So I feel alienated. My alienation makes me seem standoffish, maybe whatever, however I present to other people. I don't know. I can't speak for others, but I know that I felt alienated, maybe even if I wasn't. And that exacerbated some things. I had some stress at home dealing with them. Like, simply put, my boiler broke down. I was trying to get it. They had no more parts for it. It was a company that was no longer around and I was stressing out about it. And again, I'm in therapy, but I'm not dealing with the stress. I'm just stressed. So I'm coming to work, I'm stressed. I'm getting stressed at work because the social dynamic for me is hard to navigate. And I end up one night taking on, actually Lieutenant after on our second night. So we work a two day, two night rotation at the fire department. And my first night I was on the dispatch. So I basically didn't get any sleep that night. Didn't really get any sleep during the day. I come back in that night. And I've got all this stress and we get this really hard call. This guy is sick, like super sick. Doesn't want to go to the hospital. He's hitting the town visiting. And long story short, I'm trying to get this guy to go to the hospital. And after an extended period of time, my superior officer shut me down and just said, that's it, we're done. Yeah. The dynamic is, was weird though. The dynamic was weird though, because I'm the, I was the only paramedic on the scene. Everybody else is basically advanced CMT. It's called the cardiac level in Rhode Island. And I was really worried about this guy getting sick and dying. And the issue being is if something happened, I overplayed it in my head, but it would all fall on me. And this officer shut me down. And I had a temper tantrum. In short, I had a temper tantrum. I asked this officer that since he had made a command decision to write the report and he dismissed me. He said, no, man, this is you. I said, no, overriding me. And I just threw the laptop across this uh, hotel hallway in front of four or five police officers, about seven, seven coworkers at the fire department. And who knows how many, or how many civilians there got back to the station and I just couldn't cool off. I was too angry. And the officer tried to talk to me and I said, that's it. I'm going home sick. And I stormed out of the station. Um, I tell guys all the time, I should have been fired legitimately. I believe very much, especially as I've gotten older in professionalism. And that is one of the most unprofessional things I could have done. And not only that, I really alienated. I truly alienated myself from the rest of the department. I, I was not somebody to talk to. And I say that, but at the same time, there are a few guys that I work with that truly saved my life because even after that, they didn't ask questions. They didn't ask about it. They just stayed as brothers. And I can't 
thank them. I truly like not to be dramatic and I was never suicidal, but I do feel like I owe them my life because if I had not felt that, I don't want to say camaraderie, if I had not felt wanted and accepted by these few guys, I don't think I would have made, I think I would have made bad choices. During that time, I own firearms. I am a huge firearm enthusiast, but I recognize where I was at mentally. And I gave my firearms to a friend of mine. I, I didn't even tell the wife until after. I was like, I just said, hey, Carl, I need you to take these. I said, I'm not in a good place. And he said, no problem. And he took them for me and kept them out of my reach. And that's, again, I always get in my own way. That was pretty rock bottom in my life, definitely career-wise. Alienated myself from most of the department. I was ashamed of myself for the way I acted. And it was a light bulb that I was like, man, I'm still not dealing with all this, all this stuff. I had been seeing a therapist for five years. At that. What am I missing here? And it took that event for me to really start taking a, an introspective look at myself and look at my own actions and how, what I need to do to be in a better place. So what did you do? A lot. <laughs> And I'm still doing it today. Primarily what I did was I hid. I had the opportunity to go to a different station, still on the same shift. But I put my tail between my legs. I put my head down and I hid. I got out of the most stressful of situations. And again, I went to a place where, you know, with the guy who, who took my firearms, I ended up, he was the other private on this engine that I ended up on for a temporary assignment. And that gave me enough time to at least, I don't even want to say breathe, but at least catch my breath a little bit. And I took this introspective look and this is when I started, I had just started listening to podcasts and I found Joe Rogan. And then I heard about this guy. I don't know. I'm sure everybody's heard about him in the fire service, but I heard about this Jocko Willens guy and extreme ownership. And I read the book. And I said, oh, it's on me. If I get a bad call, it's on me to handle the emotional toll that it takes on me. It's on me to be the best at my, to perform at my best level for that person. You know what I mean? And that just doesn't mean just emotionally, that's physically and mentally and training and all that. All of it. I have to be 100% for my job. And then after that, it was Jordan Peterson and the 12 rules of, and then David Goggins' book. And I started listening. And that's why, like earlier when I talked about my childhood, listen to David Goggins. I don't know if you ever have. His book can't hurt me. I can't explain it. Like I said, like my life was hard. My mom never pulled a gun on my dad. My, my dad didn't keep me up until two in the morning to clean his bar. And then I had to have to go to school the next day. Someone's always gotten it worse. I started realizing that there are things out there. Are, I realized that nothing is going to fix my problems except me. It's, I have to fix this. And there's no magic pill. There's no two-day seminar. This is me taking the time to be a better person and to 
most importantly, subside my ego to realize that I need to fix it, but I don't have the tools alone to do it. I need to find the resources and I need to keep pushing to be that better person. And that's why it's important to say that I'm still working on it this day. Soon after that, I did something called EMDR therapy for the childhood trauma. And I can't emphasize enough the importance of doing that therapy for people that have traumatic experiences. My therapist, we were doing cognitive behavioral therapy with my regular therapist. And she's like, hey, we'll try this out. And after three sessions, the childhood trauma that I had been feeling, it was gone. I can't explain it other than childhood me, the inner child in me was no longer scared and no longer afraid. And it sounds woo-woo sometimes to people and it's hard to explain, but like they, they do say your emotional maturity is stunted at the age of your trauma. And I got past a lot of it, not all of it. I don't know if I'll ever be over all of it, but I got past the parts that really made me stumble a lot because I was able to connect with that child in me that had seen all that trauma and say, hey, we're moving forward. We've got this. And to describe it, like, I don't feel that emotional childness in me anymore. Not all the time. And I feel like that child, that baby Mike is holding my hand and enjoying the ride with me now, rather than being scared in a corner and me having to drag him out. Hey guys, quick break right here just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount and I appreciate all of you. I have one request though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. And so that brings us to 2020. Yeah. August of 2020. And this you referenced this at the beginning when you talked about where you are and what you can see from where you're sitting. So what happened in August of 2020? What was this call? That This is the one that I think really... You can't, you do carry. This is a call that yeah, I will always carry. And let me premise all this with it's okay not to be okay. I think that's, is helping me through all this. Like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be over it, but I know I can handle the emotions of it. And I know that I'll be all right. And that this victim that, you know, I'm going to share will always be with me. But August of 2020, this is full-blown COVID. Everybody's on lockdown. We get a call for at this popular jumping spot. Again, I'll reference that movie, Me, Myself, and Irene. The final scene where the Jim Carrey asks, Jim Carrey's character asks Renee Zellweger's character to marry her. Marry him. It is the road that I'm sitting on now and is the road that you take to get to this popular jumping spot here. And it's up varying heights, but the highest cliff is probably 
30-ish feet, 20 to 30 feet high. It's a lot of fun. So we get a call there, which isn't uncommon. Multiple people have passed there over the years for multiple people in the water struggling to swim. We were all in the station that was down the road, probably about two miles down the road. The captain gives a quick breakdown. All right, I want you to do this. Let's get this. You get that. And I was going to get dressed and be the rescue swimmer. So I get the uh, wetsuit on, we get there. And as we get out with the rescue, uh, some people walk up to me and they're like, oh, everybody's out of the water. I'm like, all right. And I look down the cliffs and there's this ledge and it looks like a perfect table. And there's this young man with two other men that seem to know I'm with him. And then 20 or 30 other people all over the cliffs. So I climb down there and I start talking to him. And I said, hey, what's going on, man? And I remember he was a little blue with the lips. He was a gentleman of color, African-American. And he's like, man, I feel like I can't breathe. And I touched him. I had to reach out a little bit. I'm like, hey, man, I got you. You're going to be all right. And I paused for a minute. And I wanted to make sure that everybody moves out of the water. I just said, hey, hold on. And I looked up and I scanned the water. And as I did that, a girl behind me said, Somebody better start CPR. And I say it with bitterness because I still am a little bitter and realize that unfortunately that he, let's say his name is Jay and Jay had slashed his, he'd gone into pulmonary edema. Basically, you know, what we describe as maybe a secondary drowning. Salt water is bad to get in the lungs. And Jay proved that. Um, so right away, I cleared everybody off the rocks except his brother and his cousin. Cause it was just me and these civilians at the time while the guys were getting everything set up to, we had to do a high angle rescue, but we had to get the medical equipment ready to go. They're setting that all up. So I'm there by myself and I looked at his cousin and his brother. I said, listen, I need you to start working with me doing CPR. Do you guys know how to do it? And they're like, and I'm like, we'll work through it. And we started working Jay at that point on these rocks and Equipment's getting passed down now. And so we're doing everything we can, Jay. And we cherry him up, get him in the rescue. I uh, intubated him. I start suctioning troughs out of the tube as best I can. And we worked him all the way to the hospital. And again, you got to find the funny moments in life sometimes. Just like I talked about with that guy with the motorcycle. I think he was missing a dead squirrel. I had gotten changed in the back of the rescue and I had taken my clothes off and put them on the stretcher in the moment, not really thinking about it. My best friend on the job was there. He took the stretcher out and he's like, why are there clothes all over the stretcher? And he, he flung them off to the side. So we're working on, I took my wetsuit down to my waist. So I was helpless and my shirt's gone. So I walk into the ER working this kid with no shirt on. <laughs> In my little scuba seat, I wheel on into the ER for all the nurses and the doctors to see me in my beautiful dad bod. So you never had a chance. Once you get salt water in your lungs, enough to make you flash pulmonary edema like that, there's no coming back. There's no chance. But it was Jay's 25th birthday. And he was there with his brother and his cousin, enjoying his 25th birthday. Cleaning up from the call, his mom comes. And it's like a scene in a movie. She's yelling at the kids. Everybody, he's got multiple family members there. And she's emotionally upset. 
understandably, I can't imagine. And part of me wanted to not get involved and part of me wanted to be involved. Either way, I helped her up off the ground that she was, she collapsed down in a heap on the ground in, in the ambulance entrance in the doorway. Me and this other nurse, the male nurse that works at the ER that we go to, helped her up and it just, it sticks with me. We all watch those movies and we see the scenes of the family member shrieking out over the death of, of this person. And in real life, it does happen that way. But you don't get that, you can't feel that emotion through a screen. And when you see it in real life, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. There's nothing you can do to make it better. One thing I've had to hash over in my own head with this over the years now since is realizing that it was my own arrogance that set me up for this situation because I'm a very confident paramedic. I am not the best. I am good at my job. And I really thought, ah, oh, he's talking to me. I can, can fix the world from here. And in that arrogance, he died. And in my head, I should have stopped. Again, there's no way, but I should have stopped. And so this is during COVID, correct? Yep. And you had mentioned to me, and just for sake of the story, you had mentioned to me that your, your drinking had increased a bit during COVID just because of the ease and the availability of time, basically, correct? Exactly. I'm not, I, I'm, do you have children? Yeah, they're, sure. they're older, but yes. My kids were younger, but anybody who had kids in grade school or, yeah, they probably understand this. Like five o'clock became three o'clock for a cocktail because you're at home. You can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. Kids are at home. You're going crazy because they're not crazy about doing a schoolwork to begin with, let alone through a computer. You get a little struggles there and hey, three o'clock, why not crack one, one beer now? And then we crack a beer at three o'clock instead of it only being three beers before you go to bed. Now you're talking like five, six beers before bed. And so how's that, how does that start affecting you? My wife will argue with me. I, my wife noticed a decline in my emotional state in the sense that I was just becoming more and more miserable. I didn't see an impact on my emotions myself. And she really started harping on me about my alcohol, like consumption. So to me, I'm like, listen, I'm going to work every day. I'm bringing home dinner, or bringing home the money for us to live. I'm here with the boys, helping them through learning. Everything's fine. You're overreacting. And after Jay, I was in therapy still. I was, I thought I had dealt with it all. And I was drinking more and a little bit more and it just crept up. And again, it never became a full-fledged problem of alcoholism. It wasn't like I, I had two night, I worked two night shifts. I didn't drink those days, but when I was home, I would have four, five, six drinks. And that affects your emotional health over time. Because even if you drink two beers, don't think people like quit drinking for a week just a week. And you'll notice that if you have two beers, there's a light fog the following day in your head. You didn't, maybe you didn't even get drunk, but alcohol is a toxin and your body treats, treats it as such. So 
all of that was, I wasn't feeling good emotionally. I was drinking more, which was making me feel worse physically, which was making me feel worse emotionally. And it just becomes again, this vicious circle. So fast forward a year later, August of 2021, my best friend is finally getting married. I'm excited. I love his now wife. And we go to the wedding. It's open bar, which makes me super excited. And we're having, I'm having a great time. And I've never been cut off at a bar that I can remember. And I get cut off. And when I got cut off, my wife got very upset because she had been harping on me for all this time about my drinking being an issue and blah, blah, blah. And we had already had some underlying issues. And this night, it all just came to fruition. And we had this blowout argument. She, thank God I didn't drive, but she took off in, the, in, in our cars. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to walk home. The wedding venue was across the bay where we live. So I was just going to grab the water ferry and take the water ferry over to the other side of the harbor and walk home from there. We're talking like two, three miles at most. And that was my plan. And then my best friend's brother, his wife, and my best friend's mom see me walking. And they're like, Mike, what are you doing? And I'm like, hey, what's going on? And they gave me a ride home. I get home to my wife. We talk a little bit more. Nothing was getting constructive was going to get done. She goes to bed and I'm in the kitchen and I'm just revved up. And again, going back to the PTSD thing, flashbacks to me had always been this like, like questionable thing. I'm not saying that it's not possible, but I'm like, come on, man, really? Jay ends up on my kitchen floor being held up by his cousin in front of me in my kitchen. And I looked at him and I said, dude, I am so sorry. And I cried and I said, I wish I could have saved you. And I wish I could have helped you. And I wish I had done more. But then the other side of me is also looking. And I remember like looking to the, like Jay was to my right and the kitchen door was to my left. And I remember looking to the left saying, this isn't real, Michael. This isn't real. But there he was on my kitchen floor. And the trippiest moment in my life. Now, again, a lot of emotional stuff going on outside of Jay and a lot of alcohol that night. It's a bad combination. And that was the result. My brain was saying, hey, let's rewind back to this point, I think. Here's something we still haven't processed yet. After that night, my wife and I looked at each other and I said, hey, I think I'm going to go live in the, we have a travel trailer, a small travel trailer. I said, I'm going to go live in the travel trailer. And she said, yeah, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> and I lived in our travel trailer for a couple of months. I continued with my therapy. My wife went to therapy for a little bit and we started reprocessing things a lot. And we were able to kind of, we weren't able to, we got back together and we have been able to, again, forge our relationship back together and make things good. Again, nothing's perfect, but we really were able to focus on being there for each other a lot more. But it made me realize that with going through therapy, even thinking that I made peace, that's, I think, the best way to describe it. I thought I had made peace with Jay. And I hadn't. And it poked out in that moment 
And that to me was a huge wake up to go back to that original day when Jay first passed, I was in the middle of a 36 hour shift between a couple overtime shifts and uh, shift swaps. That was the end of my first day shift. So then I worked a night shift and then I worked the following day. I was never offered any critical assistance, stress debriefing or anybody else on that was there with me. A few people reached out to me, a few of the brothers. Uh, even a friend of mine who was a sheriff here in Rhode Island had heard about it and reached out to me, which was beautiful. And I appreciated that. But it was all by text. And nothing more was really asked of it. Nobody checked in with me a couple of weeks later or a month later. Nobody's, nothing was ever done. And again, fall back to just one more storm to put in the backpack. So after my wife and I got back together, I got promoted a few months after that. And what I realized is the blessings that I've been given through my, through these opportunities, I should have been fired when I've had bad thoughts and have been at my lowest of lows and I'm still able to come out of it. I've decided to pivot and make sure that my career focuses on the well-being, the mental well-being of all those guys that I, all the guys that I work with and work around, you know, and that's becoming an officer. That's going to be my focus. I shouldn't be, I shouldn't have my job, let alone be promoted. And the only way I can give back is to make sure that nobody goes down the path that I traveled because it's rocky, man. And I'm never going to stop everybody from doing it, but if I can create programs and assist brothers and sisters through dark times so they don't have to make the stumbles that I did. I would say that is the best repayment that I can give for the opportunities that I have been given. So to that end, what are you doing? It's a lot. There's a lot of, I'm working on a peer support program. You talked about the doctor from the fire department documentary. I'm working on it. We've always had a peer support program at the state level in Rhode Island, and those guys do a good job. And there's only a couple of them though. I'm working on a program where I want to get our guys trained. I have a few guys from my department that are ready to be taking uh, like the IAF peer support class. And we're going to develop a program where a brother or a sister can be there at a time when we have this bad call. And we'll have tools and resources and say, hey, you guys just experienced this bad cold. Let's chat about it. Let's do a quick hot wash about it. Let's get this all out on the table because they're showing that's what's best for us. Let's get it all out there. Let's talk about this. And then be able to have resources for therapists. I have, I've started making phone calls to therapists that I have three or four therapists that are willing to take a referral from us within 24 to 48 hours. Because if one of my brothers reaches out to me and says, hey, I think I want to see a therapist. I don't have a week. I don't have five days in my opinion. For that guy, for that person to come to that point and be willing to ask for help, we have to capitalize on that quickly. So we're processing that. I've also started working with other local departments, police and fire, um, to try to pool our resources because we're a pretty small community. We're geographically isolated and working with those guys, we're hoping to have a 1-800 number for people to reach out to. And one of our peer support training guys will answer the phone 24 seven and say, all right, you're having a bad day. And we're not therapists, but we're here to listen. 
and direct guys to the right resources. And I'm working on developing a lot of this right now. None of it's going to happen overnight. I've been working on it for almost a year now. But I'm making progress. But my reason for reaching out to you is because people have asked, what can I do now? I sat down with my chief and had a discussion with him about some of these things. And he said, Mike, what can I do now? And I said, chief, just share your story. Share your struggles. Because when you walk in the fire station, everybody is either cracking jokes or grumpy. And there's nothing in between. We, like, we don't share what's going on in our lives in depth. We don't share our emotions. Where It's this alpha male community that we've been, that we're in. And I'm not saying that everybody needs to share their emotions. I'm not saying that you should share your emotions all the time. But we need to make sure that we're comfortable with each other. And that everybody has a safe place to just break down sometimes. Because if you don't break down and you hold it all in, it's going to come out. And next thing you know, you're going to be throwing a laptop across the hall. Don't be that guy. Where are you with your own therapies and stuff today? What is the, are you continuing with therapy today? Or are you, are you, what are you doing so, for yourself today? After my wife and I got back together, emotionally, I've never been, I've never been in this place. It's weird to be happy. I've never known what it's like to not allow the stress to overtake me. So I'm not in therapy on a regular basis anymore. Um, my therapist is on speed dial. If I do need her, I do text her every once in a while. I'm like, hey, can I have a quick meeting? And I meet her with an hour and just to help me process things sometimes. The last time I met with her, I was trying to process some really great stuff that I had going on with my peer support movements, but it was a lot. I was meeting with people and talking to people and I was overwhelmed and I processed that with her. More and more, I realized that, like I said, Jay's still with me. So I'm probably going to set up an appointment for EMDR and do a few sessions of the EMDR therapy to really process Jay. Again, I don't mind carrying Jay for the rest of my life because I hope he had a good life up until that moment. And I hope he knows that I poured a lot of love into him because I wanted to give him the best that I had. And I'm okay with all that. But hopefully I can kind of ease that tension a little bit more. From there, I'm researching therapies. I'm very interested, again, being a Joe Rogan and listening to other like special operations podcasts. There's a lot of good research going on right now about psychedelic therapies. I can't remember the name of the website. There is a guy, I think he might be out of Canada if I remember right, but he is doing, working on psychedelic therapies for first responders. That for me is something for personal growth. Now, anything to do with the fire department, not a, it's a pursuit for me for uh, sp more spiritual reasons. It's very important for me that I put it all in this context of the spiritual and emotional journey. But there's a lot of traumas, whether it be mushrooms or psilocybin or ayahuasca, DMNT, ibogaine, ketamine therapy is out there. I don't know if you guys are carrying ketamine where you are. We just got ketamine in my department recently for broken bones and for excited delirium. I've used it. I think it's a fantastic drug, but it's also being used now as a psychedelic therapy for depression. There's a lot out there and I'm investigating those and really trying to make sure that 
I understand how it all works. And probably I'm hoping within the next year, I'm going to do an ayahuasca retreat. There are actual ayahuasca retreats in the country that you can go to legally. It's a, like a religious exemption thing. And it's usually like a little weekend, but they're like a few hundred bucks, three to 600 bucks is the price range that I'm seeing. So I've a little cost prohibitive right now. And then after that, some of the other things that I've been doing that are important to me. One, I ski. I'm going skiing, hopefully for the first time this season, this week. And then I usually get about 10 to 20 days a year. My motorcycle is another important thing to me. One thing that I realized is my life has always been this ride that's not really controllable sometimes. It's just so chaotic. And the only time that I truly feel at peace is when I'm on my skis, going down a hill. I have myself clocked at excessive speeds, like highway speeds on my skis. And there's something there where knowing that one pebble in the snow, one mistake, and it's going to be a bad day for me, but I can control it. And it's a tempting fate thing. It's the same thing for my motorcycle. And I think a lot of first responders have that as well. It's this idea that we want to test that invincibility that we've all had or think we've had in the past. We've all been in fires and you're looking around going, oh, oh man, this is a little weird, a little crazy, but we all come out and we're like, yeah, nothing happens. And I like that feel. I think our job is learning how to handle stressful situations in the moment. And they're life or death situations typically. And when you're really getting tense, it's because it's a life and death situation. Whether you're working a cardiac arrest or have a really complex trauma call or you're extricating someone or you're cutting a hole in a roof, this is life and death type of situation. Jiu-jitsu, you're learning how to defend yourself while getting choked by someone else. And you don't have control over that other person. And you have to be able to literally while you're losing oxygen, it's, I haven't gotten cast out yet, but I've had my vision narrowed as that blood flow gets restricted to my brain. And I'm trying to process what's my next step? Where do I go from here? And that processing under pressure has helped me so much. And I, the emotional release is amazing as well. And again, it helps on so many levels when it comes to that stuff. So I, anybody out there, any martial art, but especially jujitsu, where you get to every class, we get to spar. You're going full-blown sparring sessions every class. And it's liberating. And on top of that, like there's a camaraderie there because you're trust, trusting someone else. At any point, if that person decides they don't want to let your arm go, when you decide to tap out, they can just break your arm. If they decide that they just want to make you go to sleep, they can do that. And there's a trust there that is amazing. I think very important for people to see. I've been loving the jujitsu side of things and the tie into work. So let's, I know there's a quote you want to wrap up with. And so before we get to the book and before we get to the everyday carry, give me the quote that you wanted to share with us. I know I got it right here. The, Patty the Batty, Tim Blatt, is a current UFC fighter. About six months ago, he had a fight and he won it. He did a really awesome job. He gets done with it. He's a comical character. He 
basically teabagged his opponent after the win of the fight. So he's this ridiculous character, but at the during the post-fight interview, he doesn't even talk about the fight. He shares a quick story dedicating the fight to a little baby. And then he shares that the morning before the fight, at four in the morning, he got a phone call that a friend had killed himself. And I'm just going to read the quote verbatim. There's a stigma in this world that men can't talk. Listen, if you're a man and you've got a weight on your shoulders, you think the only way you can solve it is by killing yourself. Please speak to someone. Speak to anyone. Patty said, I know I'd rather my mate cry on my shoulder than go to his funeral the next week. And I don't know for you, I know from my experiences, I know either have known someone or knew someone like one person removed, like from a different department, or I knew a few people that have committed suicide in this career. I would say it's probably in the ballpark of 10 or 15 people that I knew or we were in the same circles. And that's not normal. <laughs> that is not okay. And I think people in our career don't necessarily understand that. They're not seeing the forest for the trees that is. And talking to my wife, I don't, my wife doesn't know anybody that's ever committed suicide. My, I was talking to my mom the other night and she said the same thing. She said, I can't think of anybody that I knew that has committed suicide. And I can probably name, I could definitely name four or five people off the top of my head that I interacted with, that I worked with, that I had spent time with, that killed themselves. So let's not fool ourselves here in, in thinking that, oh, people just commit suicide. No, it's, there's a huge problem in, in the first responder community. And we have to recognize that. And I would rather have somebody crying on my shoulder, balled up and give them that opportunity to get it all out, then be their pole bearer. That's a perfect spot to stop right there and get to the yeah. those last two questions. Cause I think you're very right. That that's exactly the sentiment I think across the board. Yeah. Speaking of everybody be comfortable with that, but. So speaking of those two questions, let's get to them. What's, what's your everyday carry something that you don't leave home without. So I always have my wallet on me, like most people do. But in my wallet, I have a note that I got from a, a little boy. His name was Wally Joe. He was three years old. I was teaching at a mountain, a ski mountain in New York. And his parent, he, Wally Joe, really liked skiing with me for some reason. So every weekend that season, Wally Joe and I had a private lesson together for an hour. And one of the last times I saw him, he gave me a note and it's just this plain white piece of paper. And I don't know what it says. I don't know what he drew, but I carry it. And it has been in my wallet for 20 years now. And Wally had outside of just Maybe it was just one, just being wanted. I really enjoyed skiing with him. For three years old, the kid was parallel skiing, was easy to teach, and he cared enough to give me a note to say thank you. And it hasn't left my wallet ever since. 
So you made an impact on his on his life, and he returned it and made an impact on yours. Yeah, I guess that's I, for me. It was knowing that somebody cared again in that time of my life. Like it was really hard to feel accepted and wanted by people. And what you were learning from a three year old to get a note saying, "Hey, Mister Ski Instructor, thank you." So yeah, what? Impactful. What about a book? What book do you want to suggest to the audience? Again, I, I mentioned him a little earlier. Uh, I'm a huge Chuck Willings fan. I've read all of his books. I think the ones that I didn't, the one I didn't mention, I think the one that impacted me the most and has helped me the most was Jason Redmond. I think it's The Trident. It's his first book. He's now like a, he's a former Navy SEAL. Obviously, we don't have the same careers, but our stories parallel each other. He got promoted. To, he was a private, went to, became a Navy SEAL, became an officer, and nearly lost his job. And fortune kept him employed as SEAL. And the parallels were just uncanny to me. And the book itself is a book of ownership, taking responsibility for your actions. But one of hope too, because he actually ended up on his last deployment after his temper tantrum, his meltdown, he got blown up in Afghanistan, I believe. Not blown up. He actually got shot with an RPK. And if you see a picture of him now, his face is deformed. Um, he became famous because there's a, he wrote a note that Michelle Obama actually put out there on her social media at the time while he was at the hospital. She came to visit him and he had this note up and she snapped it out there. And even after that, he didn't want sympathy. He didn't want anybody to feel bad for him. And it made him angry. And now he takes his experiences and shares those, shares those with others in a great way. That, that's the first book I would definitely recommend. The other one I'm going to recommend too. I'm still reading it, but I'm going to give a quick shout out to Travis House. I'm finishing, I'm about halfway through his book. I'm actually reading about the Charleston Nine right now. Again, the guy who it was just plowing through life, plowing through his career and had a moment of anger, blacked out. And next thing he knows, he's sitting outside of the fire station, has never entered it again and lost his job because he never dealt with being the guy finding his friend and dragging and taking him out of this terrible tragedy. And he shares this, those story of these guys. And I, that's, I'm trying to emulate him in a lot of ways. He's sharing, he's burying himself. He's got nothing left to lose and he's burying himself. So his brothers and sisters don't follow down the same path. And I think I, I haven't been to one of his conferences. I'm hoping maybe one day I can get him up here to Rhode Island, but I think he's got a very powerful story and I think he shares it really well. So if you're, if you want to learn a little more on uh, Charleston nine, you should check out one of my guests and I had to look and see which episode it was, but Dr. David Griffin was one of my guests and he was the first in engine driver that day on Charleston nine. It oh, was, yeah. It was the first fire he ever had to pump on as well. And so he, uh, he tells it, he tells it from a different point of view. Not that Travis is wrong. I'm not saying that because Travis's story is Travis's story, but David Griffin's yeah. story is pretty, pretty enthralling as well. And what he's done after that is pretty, is very interesting. Both have gone on to do great things for, from that. And again, I think, let me have, let me stand on a soapbox a little bit here. One of the most important things out of all of this, I think is important for people to take away is 
we need to be more vulnerable with each other. We need to put aside the egos. What one person sees, maybe another person sees differently. But at the end of the day, there's no need to get ego involved in anything in life. And I think too many guys want to leave their mark on the department or leave their mark in the fire service. And it just, just creates a toxic environment for all of us. We can all disagree, but at the end of the day, just learn to turn to the person you're disagreeing with and give them a hug because that person may be dragging you out of the fire one day, or you may have to drag them out of the fire one day. And that's, that sounds dramatic, but that's the frank truth of it. And too many guys want to have this ego and it's, and myself included, trust me, except I, I've had way too much ego in this job until, and even now I struggle with it sometimes, but at the end of the day, man, like we are a family, we are brothers and sisters. We're going to squabble, but just be with each other and then appreciate the life that other person has. And that's perfect. I think that's the perfect spot to, to end on. And man, I appreciate the conversation. Thanks for letting me rant and rave, man. And I, I, I sharing my story. And like I said, that's the most important thing. Just share, man. Share in the station. Share with your family. Share on a podcast. And I'm not going to lie to you. I'm nervous about it. This is out of my comfort zone, but I got to practice what I preach. Now you, you, know? did, you, and, you did fantastic, man. I'm telling you. It'll come out good. You'll hear it. It'll be out in a few weeks and I'll let you know when it's coming out. Uh, listen, I appreciate that, man. And much love to you. And just know that what you're doing is exactly what we need to be doing right now. And I will be sharing your podcast with everybody, you know, as much as I can and try to push it out there. But just keep it up, man. And if you need a hand with anything, don't be afraid to reach out because I, I believe what you're doing. Awesome. I appreciate it. Go enjoy the rest of your day. Decompress a little bit and we'll be in touch. No problem, brother. I'll talk to you soon. All right, man. Take care. And we're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves, and remember to check in on each other.